And that's when the fella next to me, he starts up singing again. And he's got a powerful voice. So the rest of us, we start joining in too. And Banjo, he walks on over and he stops. And he goes up to the man with a strong voice and he starts talking to him. Real quiet and intense like. But I was right by him so I could hear what he was saying. And I remember he's calling him Bear. Mr. Bear. And he's getting agitated, asking him how he ended up on a Louisiana road game. And this fella he's calling Bear, I'll never forget it. He looks him right in the eye and says back to him, You must have me mixed up with someone else, sir. My name is Ledbetter. Welcome to Baron Banjo. This episode's made from the tape-recorded journals of the musicologist, Dr. Asa B. Quickly, the holder of the Henry Rowland Bird Chair of American Studies at the University of Oxford, the one in Mississippi, of course. Dr. Q is engaged in a dedicated study of the two men referred to in Southern folktales as Baron Banjo. And some stories are just too strange to believe. In today's presentation, we find out how Baron Banjo come to find themselves at the center of the first ever musical prison break. In today's examination, our timeline shifts from the late 40s and early 50s all the way back to the mid-30s. We go back in time to understand some of the folk origins of Baron Banjo and how they cross paths with the pioneers of the recorded voice, the Lomaxes and how, in turn, they disrupt history yet again in no small way. It should be mentioned that the story of the duo does not happen sequentially. For all intents and purposes, their story is liquid through time. Certain events correlate to other events, even though they're seemingly unrelated and many times occur decades apart. In 2019, I came into possession of a Brown Durham 78 RPM recording of a song called Born This Way in the papers of Oscar O.K. Allen at Baylor University. Allen was governor of Louisiana from 1932 to 1936. When I played the record, it sounded like no music made in the 1930s, although there were distinct echoes of the Delta Blues in the vocal. The label credited the performance to Walter Boyd, but I was certain I had found another recording by the mystery musician referred to in Southern folklore as Mr. Bear. The search for information about this elusive figure has overtaken my musical and sociological study. Every new clue, each new testimonial or bit of evidence I uncover adds another piece to the jigsaw puzzle picture I am working to assemble. Mr. Bear and his partner, who called himself Jay Banjo, seem to have been present and even influential at many of the signal events in the history of American vernacular music. From Parchman Farm to New Orleans, 
From the Bristol Sessions to Sun Studios. For years, experts haven't been able to agree on exactly where bear and banjo should even fit into the neatly categorized world of modern music. They pop up all around history. They're sort of like Kaiser Soze of the musical world. Musical ghost stories, if you will. The story of bear and banjo isn't just about the music. It's also about their proximity to history. Luckily, Jay Banjo had a new technology on his side, the portable recording device, influenced by the characters he would soon meet. The Lomaxes and Bear believed that recorded music and voices of regular American folks were of interest to the rest of the ever-expanding and modern American idea. So they took the medium of recorded sound on the road to the people to open up a whole new wave of music, which would in turn become the folk era. This first wave of recorded folk music consisted primarily of hillbilly songs, race records, and other indigenous American sounds. To Bear, this meant musical opportunities and voices for the voiceless. But for Banjo, he saw dollar signs and another grift. Jay Banjo here. I'm just outside New Orleans, and we got some city folk here with technology to bring my songs to the masses. I missed my chance back with them Bristol sessions, but the Lomaxes are here now. They've been canvassing the country, and this is my chance to make it all the way to the Big Apple as a showman. I haven't seen Bear in some time now. I'm making my way with or without him. Perhaps these tunes are enough to get me signed on Merit alone. But if not, there's always Bear. If I can track him down, goddammit, where could he be? Where could he be indeed? No one had seen the likes of Bear for some time. Bear and Jay Banjo parted ways after their initial run of musical encounters in the early 1930s. Jay Banjo knew that in order to fulfill his musical dreams, they would have to reunite. But in the meantime, there was that record, that haunting record. The record credited to Walter Boyd did not sound like any record made in the 1930s or indeed in the pre-vinyl era. That is characteristic of the recordings made by the Bear, who seems to have been a Johnny Appleseed of musical ideas, some of which had an immediate influence on entertainers and songwriters he encountered, while others lay dormant for years before finding expression in songs that appeared for the first time in the 1940s, 1950s, and even into the 1970s. Through the library of Baylor University, where Governor O.K. Allen's papers are kept, I made contact with D.J. Brebner, the son of the late governor's longtime secretary, Bowdy Brebner. It was my good fortune that Bounty, a bachelor, had cared for his father during a long convalescence and committed to memory the stories he heard many times. My father was at the governor's side every day, Saturdays included, and often Sundays as well. I heard him speak a number of times about this character, Mr. Banjo, who I understand to have been a white man, and Mr. Bear, who was a Negro. My father thought it unusual that Mr. Banjo appeared to defer to Mr. Bear. When they first came into the governor's orbit, it was assumed that Bear was Banjo's servant. Later, my father said he was quite certain that the lines of authority extended in the other direction. Although in those days in that part of the world, it was not something careful men would have advertised. 
During a sabbatical semester, I traveled to Louisiana with a copy of the song called Born This Way and played it at African-American retirement homes and two Shreveport saloons that catered to a clientele of senior citizens. Several of the elderly patrons suggested that they knew the name of the singer on my tape recorder, but there was no agreement between them. That's Woodrow Adams. I met him once in Itawamba. Saw him perform on the back of a cabbage truck. Yeah, I know who that is. That big fellow traveled with the little white man. He was the name that was not a true name. I knew the man who named me to him. Big fellow. Strange eyes. He heard music from somewhere the rest of us couldn't hear. Over two journeys, totaling 33 days, I assembled what I believed to be the true story of how Governor Allen came into possession of the record attributed to Walter Boyd. The more I learned, the more certain I became that I had indeed discovered a previously unknown recording by the lost musician called Mr. Bear. The first key was my discovery that during his days in the governor's mansion, O.K. Allen came to be acquainted with John Lomax. The Lomaxes are people you might want to know if you're trying to digest a story rooted in American 20th century history. They were folklorists, and the Lomaxes, John and Allen, roamed the American South making recordings of spirituals, blues, and folk music. Google them if you can. Interesting fellers for sure. Once I knew that, I was able to fill in much more of the story with the invaluable aid of the Lomax Archive at the American Folklife Center of the Library of Congress. We owe much of our understanding of American blues to John and Alan Lomax. In the course of their journeys, Lomax's father and son recorded prisoners like Ironhead Baker and Clear Rock Platt. They were intellectual badasses of their day, so to speak. John Lomax felt that convicts who had been locked up for a long time preserved the purity of the folk and blues songs they remembered, uncorrupted by access to the new inventions, radio, and phonograph records. The Lomaxes recorded non-prisoners too, and that is how they came to know the man referred to in their notes as Jay Banjo. Today's the day I play my folk repertoire for the Lomaxes. Sure, I might not be from the field or some small town, but I got folk music in me. All that time I've spent with Mr. Bear has brought it out. I know it, I see it, and I think that they'll see that I'm the real deal and not some phony baloney city folk or some showy vaudevillian trickster out to make a quick buck. My songs are good, and they're going to stand the test of time with or without Bear. The Lomaxes were approached by Banjo in a boarding house outside New Orleans. He said he had heard that the famous song collectors were passing through and wondered if he might see their recording machine. He explained that he was a musician himself and an amateur collector of folklore. The father, John Lomax, was annoyed by this fast-talking stranger, but young Allen was amused and showed him the 315-pound uncoated aluminum disc recorder 
that father and son drove from town to town. Of course, luckily for us, songs and interviews that the Lomaxers recorded from that era are available online for anybody to check out. Penny Whistle Mucky Muck was at those sessions, and we pulled an interview of his account from the archives. There's this fella. He asked if he might record a song on the apparatus. I believe he said he was curious to hear his own voice. The younger of the two told him he can come back the next day when they can be set up to record at the local Methodist church hall. Well, the next morn, that strange fellow appeared at the church carrying a tenor guitar and waited while all sorts of other folks, singers, fiddlers, banjo players, and aspiring carusos auditioned their songs. At the end of the session, the older one let that same fellow offer up a tune. And that was pretty good. We believe the person he was talking about to be none other than Jay Banjo. Banjo was confident as could be. He played not only to the recording machine and to the Lomaxes, but to all the other aspirants in the church. He offered a parade of songs that neither Lomax had heard before. The rodeo at Cherokee Slip. Home, horse, home. Lay her bones in the rushes. Pickle Barrel Polka. Banjo's vocabulary was so wide. Scottish, Irish, Kentucky, New Orleans, skip rope songs, country death ballads, white gospel, flood songs, that senior Lomax looked at Junior and wondered where this minstrel had come from. Even more, where had he learned those songs? When they had recorded 20 separate titles, almost all that I'd never heard in these parts, the father asked that fellow where he found this music. He said it came from a musician called Mr. Bear. Well, Lomax asked where they could find the bear. He said he was on his way to meet him in Shreveport. The father and son agreed to head north to meet his musical counterpart. And off they went. I thought I nailed the audition, but alas, I did not. The Lomaxes want to meet the bear. Fair enough, so I'm going to take him to him. Even if I don't really know where he is at the moment. Last I heard, he's caught up in some nonsense in New Orleans, so Shreveport, here we come. The journey to Shreveport was not long, but the Lomaxes kept stopping the car to listen to and sometimes record the songs of farmhands, peddlers, and vagabonds they encountered along the road. Banjo sat in the back seat, playing song after unknown song on his tenor guitar. They were 10 miles north of Angola when they heard a low, chanting choir. Angola used to be a slave plantation. And the plantation was named that because the country in Africa that most of the people were kidnapped from was Angola. It was a great nation on the west coast of Africa, a center of trade amongst people to the north, south, and east. 
The Europeans came to Angola, stole the people, brought them to the New World in chains, dragged them there and put them to work in the lowlands by the bayou and thought it was a pretty good joke to name the place Angola. You're home now. You're in Angola. What a terrible joke and what a terrible place. As they drove over a rise in the highway, a prison road game came into view. Father and son became as excited as hounds on a fox. When the automobile with the strange recording contraption pulled up alongside the road gang, the black men stopped singing. The guard in charge was a tall, red-headed man with a half-moon cut out of his forehead. He was called Bullball, and he wore a wide-brimmed yellow hat and walked with a Riverside 16-gauge shotgun pointed at the dirt. Bullball approached the car suspiciously. John Lomax explained he was traveling with a recording machine loaned to him by the Smithsonian Institute in Washington for the purpose of documenting the vernacular songs of rural America. Bullball looked at him like he was trying to decide if he should shoot his tires or pass wind. Young Allen produced a book by his father, Cowboy Songs and Other Frontier Ballads, with an introduction by Theodore Roosevelt. Bullball was not impressed. Natty Johnson was recorded years later for the Lomax archives. He recalled the day he met the father and son. I remember looking over and Bullball standing there, and y'all were showing him this book, and he's not having it. <laughs> you know, he doesn't care about some book. I'm not even sure Bullball knew how to read. And then I see the fella in the back seat, the banjo. And he pulls out a shiny watch, gold watch, with a silver chain. And boy, that seemed to do the trick. Bullball, he don't like much, but I could tell he liked that shiny watch. <laughs> so I see him giving you the okay to get out of the car. And this banjo fella, he's got his guitar out now. And he's trying to get us to start back up singing. But everybody's a little bit nervous. Not sure, you know, what this is exactly. What's going on? And that's when the fella next to me, he starts up singing again. And he's got a powerful voice. So the rest of us, we start joining in too. And Banjo, he walks on over and he stops. And he goes up to the man with a strong voice and he starts talking to him, real quiet and intense like. But I was right by him so I could hear what he was saying. And I remember he's calling him Bear, Mr. Bear. And he's getting agitated, asking him how he ended up on a Louisiana road game. And this fella he's calling Bear, I'll never forget it. He looks him right in the eye and says back to him, you must have me mixed up with someone else, sir. My name is Ledbetter. Banjo held his tongue. He was trying to appraise the situation and mentally rifling through a file of tricks, hoaxes, and long cons. 
His instinct and natural inclination was to maintain a poker face in all circumstances, but coming upon his friend chained to the caboose of a Louisiana road gang shook Banjo's aplomb. Bear was calm. He said he had a song he would like to sing for the aluminium recording machine. He whispered some chords to Banjo while the Lomaxes set up their contraption and then, with a hushed audience of fellow prisoners and a bull ball's nervous finger on his shotgun, the man called Bear by Banjo and Ledbetter by the guard sang a mournful song of despair. Sometimes I take a great notion to jump in the river and drown, chorused counterintuitively by a courteous Good night, Irene. Good night, Irene. I'll see you in my dreams. No one had heard this song before. When it was done, Bear gave Banjo an instruction. Get that to the governor and tell him Huddy William Ledbetter of Angola Prison hopes to gain a pardon to pursue a career in the lively arts. Banjo looked at the big man with an expression that said, I hope you know what you're doing. Bullball comes over and he says, Okay, that's enough of this. And you got to get out of here. You got what you wanted? Go on. You got to go now. And so y'all get back in the car. And as you're driving off, the fella next to me, he yells out while you're driving by. He says, Go to Shreveport. Find Walter Boyd on Fannin Street. And I'm thinking, Hell, Bullball's not going to like that fella yelling out like that and I look over at him but he didn't even notice because Bullball is looking in his pocket and he's looking mighty upset then I see him looking all over because he already can't find his fancy new pocket watch he's looking on the ground he's looking everywhere and it is gone and he's staring at that car driving off in the distance and Bullball is mad as hell I tell you what, that timepiece must have had a long chain. Well, this is new territory even for Jay Banjo. Having his longtime companion and friend pretend to be someone else, not even letting on with a wink or a nod as he puts himself smack dab in one of the most dangerous prisons in the world. Kind of threw him for a loop. But on they went with their instructions to head to Louisiana. The abundance of music in Louisiana had been aptly described as an embarrassment of riches. Louisiana generated several seminal musical styles and contributed to the development of many others. So when Banjo and father and son Lomax made their way to the Red Light District in the St. Paul Bottoms, they moved from honky-tonks to saloons to body houses to dance halls, each featuring their own assortment of live music, ragtime, minstrel, parlor ballads, and this must have blown their proverbial mind. It was Banjo who spotted a chalkboard on the sidewalk outside a tavern with the inscription, Entertaining Tonight, Walter Boyd on piano, mouth organ, squeeze box, and guitar. The three men entered the tavern and were at once overcome by a singing voice of authority and great emotion. The man called Walter Boyd sat on a three-legged stool with a 12-string guitar across his lap, clapping his large hands and stamping his right foot while howling, Yonder comes Miss Rosie. How in the world did she know? 
The way she wears her apron, the way she wears her clothes. Umbrella on her shoulder, piece of paper in her hand. She come to see the governor. She wants to free her man. The Lomaxes sat there stunned by song after song. Rock Island Line. Where did you sleep last night? The gallows pole. When the set had ended, Banjo followed the man who called himself Walter Boyd into a small back room and introduced himself as a friend of Mr. Bear. Boyd was suspicious. I don't believe I know any bears. From the Lomax archives, we have the only known account of Leadbelly describing this encounter. I asked the banjo fella if Bear was a magician, some kind of escape artist. He said it didn't look to me like he was doing any escaping. I said, you here alone? He pointed through the doorway into the saloon. That man and his son gave me a ride. They are music people from the city and came with a recording machine. Bear asked us to record a song of his and take it to the governor. Play it for him and ask for a pardon for Mr. Ledbetter. He said he was determined to carry out his associate's mission, but had some questions like, why would a powerful southern white man like Governor O.K. Allen pardon an inmate in the worst prison in the South just because he liked the song? I said, what's the song like? The song had this pretty melody. A man says, good night, Irene, I'll see you in my dreams, and then contemplates drowning himself. It's rumored that when Governor Allen was young, he had a sweetheart he was fixed to marry. She drowned in Machette's River on a paddleboat outing. The pilot was reportedly drunk. This woman, Governor Allen's young fiance, was named Irene. This is where the story needs a little bit of explaining. Now, it was making sense to Banjo. He had no doubt that he could persuade the governor of the righteousness of his cause and that if all else failed, he was not above bribery. He was just confused as to how his partner ended up sitting in a cell in Angola under another man's name. Regardless, he believed the song that they had in hand told the story of the beauty of the Christian soul of Ledbetter and would bring tears to the eyes of a Confederate statue. And with that... Their prison escape was now in its final phase. So it was that next morning, Mr. Banjo and the two Lomaxes were accompanied by a black driver when they left Shreveport for the state capital in Baton Rouge. Banjo wired ahead to the governor's office saying to expect the famous Harvard musicologist, Professor John Lomax, working now under a grant from the Smithsonian, accompanied by his son and the New York theatrical producer, Mr. J. Banjo. Please extend all courtesies. Governor O.K. Allen was a serious man with a full head of white hair. He regarded the three visitors to his office with the weary patience of an executive used to having his day interrupted by strangers endorsed by people too important to ignore. Later in life, he would self-document this incident for posterity. The whole thing struck me as more than a little peculiar, and I'll be honest, I was not inclined to set loose a violent convict on the say-so of these three gentlemen, whom I didn't know from Adam, regardless of their supposed connection to the vice president. 
These boys went on and on about this fella, this lead better, and frankly, I was unconvinced. We are not in the business of handing out pardons on the basis of musical talent. That's just not how it works. And the more these folks talked at me, the more I felt I was being fed a line of bull. I got the sense that this banjo guy, in particular, was some kind of a slick operator. He's telling me how this is the right thing to do and how history is going to judge me kindly if I perform this small mercy. And I was about to send them on their way when one of the Lomax boys tells me the prisoner has written a song for me as a gift. And I'll admit, I was intrigued by that. And they produced this record. They crank up some Jules Verne phonograph machine they brought with them, and it stopped to play. When out comes a voice that was ancient as Homer and as mournful as Good Friday. It took my breath away, and so I said to him, If I grant this pardon, you'll give me your word that you will take this man out of Louisiana and he will not return? Because I didn't want this coming back to bite me. And they agreed. So I called in an aide and told him to draw up the papers to set free from Angola prison a convict named Huddy Ledbetter. And that was that. Banjo and the Lomaxes contained their excitement and thanked the governor and promised to keep him appraised of the career of this great musician he had in his wisdom emancipated. O.K. Allen nodded and asked if he could keep the recording of Goodnight Irene. On the road back to Angola prison, the four travelers came upon a wagon pulled by two old workhorses with a large figure wrapped in a prison blanket holding the reins. As they pulled closer, they saw it was the man called Bear. Both vehicles stopped. Banjo said, Hello, Mr. Ledbetter. I heard you were granted pardon. You are confused, Brother Banjo. Mr. Ledbetter is behind the wheel of your own automobile. Bear nodded to Ledbetter, who looked nervous about being so close to Angola, pardon or not. Two heads peeked up cautiously from the back of the wagon. Banjo asked, Who are your passengers? Recently deceased inhabitants of Angola prison. This is poor Lazarus, and his companion is the son of the widow of Nain. Bear asked if the Lomaxes would mind switching passengers with him. And with that, we have the first ever musical prison escape that I know of. This is how the man called Mr. Bear smuggled the great American songwriter Huddy Ledbetter out of Angola prison by changing places with him, got Ledbetter a pardon from the governor, and along the way managed to help a couple of other unfortunate prisoners find their way to freedom by way of a hearse wagon. 
As a scholar, I have no time for stories of supernatural powers, but the man called Bear was one hell of an escape artist. Lead Belly went on to decades of popular success, recordings, concerts, all over the United States and overseas. Many of his compositions became standards, the foundational texts of popular music of the 20th century. The thousands of songs recorded by John and Alan Lomax became the treasury of American music, preserved in the Library of Congress and on countless record releases. The Lomaxes saved hundreds of folk and blues songs and made the public aware of artists such as Robert Johnson, Woody Guthrie, and Muddy Waters. The song called Born This Way was like nothing the Lomaxes had ever heard before. And it contained the rhythms of the future and the past and the ghost of both angles. When they had finished the recording, Banjo said to Alan Lomax, When you get home, press one copy of that and send it to Governor Allen. Tell him it's from Walter Boyd, a citizen grateful for his support for the arts. My name is Dr. Asabi Quickly, and these are notes on my search for the identity of the two men called Bear and Banjo, who appeared to be active in the American South from the early 1930s until perhaps as late as the 1960s. Accounts vary and witnesses disagree. There is so much we do not know about the provenance of the American music that it is our culture's greatest collective creation and the true map of our nation's unwritten history. What else I have learned during my research for Bear and Banjo will continue in my next post. Uh, Kathleen, uh, get that graduate student to type these up. Coming up this season on Baron Banjo. The boys make a deal with the devil at the Canadian crossroads. Along the way, they rub shoulders with some of the most important historic music figures of our time, like Sister Rosetta Thorpe, Little Richard, Bob Dylan, and countless other musicians who made an impact on the century. Tonight's episode was written by Bill Flanagan. Baron of Banjo was created, executive produced, and directed by Jingle Jerry. Executive produced by Dennis Quaid, T-Bone Burnett, and Jason Pooh Bear Boyd. With original music by Jason Pooh Bear Boyd and Jingle Jared, it's Baron of Banjo and T-Bone Burnett with lyrical contributions from Bob Dylan. All music from Baron Banjo is produced by T-Bone Burnett and all episodes edited by David Gulick. Additional score by Jeff Peters and Jeff Judy. 
Story editing by Connor Ratliff and associate produced by Emily Bolka. Produced by Tom Piazza, Noah Brown, Brian Walland, Jesse Corwin, and Dan DeMoe. Co-produced by Rosanna Arquette. For episode music, please visit the iHeartRadio app or wherever one finds good music. Baron of Banjo is a production of Jingle Punks in partnership with iHeartRadio. Special thanks to John Ingrazia of Vector Management and Gary Morella of Mono Music. Krista Lenny from Maiden Creative, Gail Troberman, Connell Byrne, and the entire iHeart team. An extra special thanks to Sue Turner for being Baron Banjo's head of tour security. For a full list of production credits, behind-the-scenes footage, and source material, please visit baronbanjo.com. Jingle Punks is an anthem company.